0: Did you know that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony was the soundtrack of the Allied Army during World War II? In 1941, Prime Minister Winston Churchill launched a campaign that he called V for Victory. And it was the most successful propaganda campaign uh, in history. You see, Churchill was known for two things. First, he was known for a cigar that he had always at the ready to, uh, to, to puff. And then he was also known for uh, a sign that he would throw up, and that is a, uh, two fingers with his palm outward. And um, John Lennon in 1960s popularized it as the peace sign. But make no mistake about it that when Winston Churchill actually started this in the 1940s, it wasn't a sign of peace. It was a sign of victory. And as any time you see videos or pictures of him, he is either walking out of parliament or he's walking out of the prime minister's house or he's getting out of a car. He would always flash the sign with a big jovial smile. But it wasn't peace during a time of war. It was to remind everyone of the allied uh, side. There's victory. And it was during this campaign that an observation was made because during that time, they had Morse code that they would communicate back and forth. And and, and this observation was that the letter V was made up of three dots and a a dash, dot, 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 dash, (laughs) which was also the beat of the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which you just heard. So now when you hear that song and, and, you, and you hear Beethoven playing that, just think, V for victory. And so this morning, I, Johnny Gonzalez, one of your pastors, wants to remind you of, this, of our sign of victory. So today, we're actually celebrating a few things. One, we're celebrating the installation of our overseers, which, <laughs> man... <laughs> Uh, Number two, we're celebrating the close of our Anchor of Hope series today, so that's great. But an even bigger deal, not bigger than the overseers, but just an even bigger deal than closing the Anchor of Hope is that today is the closing of the Gospel of Luke. Now, for those of you that are new to our church... Uh, which I I came in in February, so I came in like literally at the tail end of the Gospel of Luke. But for those of you that are new, our church has been going through an almost two-year-long journey through the book of Luke, and today we end it. And I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Let, that's something to celebrate, to celebrate the perseverance through a gospel where we have taken the time to go through, whether that's line by line or chapter by chapter or, uh, or section by section, depending on, on, on what we were teaching on during that time, but it is the end of the gospel of Luke today. And fittingly, we are uh, going to be talking about the resurrection, yeah. our sign of victory, We are celebrating Easter in November. (laughs) And um, as we go into this week that we have historically called Thanksgiving, I want to remind you uh, that that the ultimate reason we give thanks is because Jesus is risen. Oh, man, I was expecting Easter response. Jesus is risen. (laughs) There you go. Somebody said it. He's risen indeed. There you go. Thank you, Josh. And so, and so, just like we did this past Easter, if you were with us I, as you exit today, I just want to make mention of this. As you exit today, there's going to be buntinis that are that are in the lobby, and so, so uh, I want to I want to be able to release you in time to be able to enjoy buntinis, get to know our overseers, and just and just have a great time of communion with, with one another. Amen? amen, amen. So as we end our Anchor of Hope series this morning. I want to talk about on the subject on a victory you can count on. So if I was to put a title to this message, it is the resurrection of victory we can count on. So if you have notes and you want to write that down, resurrection of victory we can count on. So if you turn to your Bibles in Luke chapter 24, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the basket in the seat in front of you. And if you don't know how to get to Luke chapter 24, just look for page 858 and you will get there. Luke chapter 24. So as you turn there, uh, in Luke 24, there are three specific moments that provoke three specific questions. And for clarity, I want to tie each question to a moment in Luke 24, okay? So a question and a moment. And here are the three questions. Number one, can I trust that the resurrection happened? Number two, why is the resurrection an anchor of hope or a victory we can count on? And what are the implications of the resurrection on my life today? Three big questions that we're going to tackle in the next three hours. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, So let's start with the first question. Can I trust that the resurrection happened? And now let's look at the moment. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 9. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. And then verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Let's play a game together, okay? And here's the game. Let's see who can guess the difference between things that are real or a story. So I'm going a to flash a, a statement up on the screen, and when I read that statement, I want you to say real if it's real or story if it's just a story. By story, I mean it's not real, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so let's go. Ready? George Washington was the first president of the United States. Real. Second, Antioch Dallas is located in the city of Dallas. Rio. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and a an noozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Story. Story. Next one. Elsa built an ice castle with her special power of freezing thin air. Oh, real? <laughs> okay, next one. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Story. Story, yeah. See, some of you got caught off guard on that. That is the first line of the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe of Chronicles of Narnia. Next one. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Story. Story. (laughs) Okay, here's the last one. A man named Jesus was born to a virgin about 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, did miracles like walking on water and raising people from the dead, was crucified on a Roman cross, and then rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he now reigns as the king of the universe. Yeah. 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 Could you imagine saying that to your kid who, who uh, you've been trying to teach them about uh, a, a story, something that is not real, so like a fantasy, or and something that is real, and then you tell them that? How are you going to teach them and tell them that uh, this is actually a real thing that happened? So can I trust that the resurrection happened? Let me set the scene for you of what's going on in Luke chapter 24 and what we just read. Imagine that you and many others spent three years with Jesus where he demonstrated that he was God and he showed where he showed compassion like none other, he loved like no, none other, forgave sins like none other, and in the middle of it all, he told you that he was going to be killed and on the third day, he was gonna be raised to life. And sure enough, Jesus was beaten and crucified where he experienced a gruesome death. What would you be thinking? Like up until this point, everybody who died, died. There was no coming back from that. Would you remember what he said or would you uh, go into doubt and unbelief? You see, when the women uh, ran into the place uh, after Jesus resurrected and the angels proclaimed, he is risen, he is not here, the women went to the disciples and they proclaimed the good news for the very first time that Jesus had risen. Don't let that, that detail slip away from you, that women went and preached the gospel to the disciples for the very first time. Okay? Okay? And when they, when they run into the place where, where uh, you, because we're inserting you into this story, were sulking and they tell you that Jesus had risen, the only thing that you do is to dismiss them as speaking nonsense. The ESV says, idle tales. The message says, um, untruths. Does that sound familiar? You see, we live in a cultural climate where uh, where the resurrection of Jesus is an idle tale, nonsense, and not a historical fact. And it's not any different than Mary Poppins or the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lion King. Because acknowledging it as a historical fact means, excuse me, acknowledging it as a historical fact means uh, that we need to reckon with it and its implications for our life. You see, we've been in the, bo- in the book of Luke for almost two years now. And as we end it, I want to remind you of why Luke was even written as an insight into the veracity of the resurrection. So if we go back to Luke chapter 1, we're not going to start the book all over again. But Luke chapter 1, and, the, and it's going to be on the screen, verse 1. Here's what Luke says as, as he begins the book of Luke. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So he's acknowledging, there have been many before me who have written down accounts of Jesus. But then he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. You see, Luke uses careful language where he says, uh, language like handed down, like eyewitnesses, carefully investigated, write an orderly account, know the certainty of things. And he uses this language to document what he has come to conclude from the investigations into all that Jesus did. So when, when we look in, in chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, and, and, and when he says that the angels declared to the women at the tomb, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. This wasn't so that he can write a compelling story and try to convince you that the resurrection happened. No, it was to demonstrate that he has carefully and painstakingly investigated this to ensure that this actually happened. Luke also documents when, when Jesus appears to the disciples and beginning in verse 36, post-resurrection, Jesus shows up um, and engages their doubts by having them look and, and, and touch his hands and feet. And he begins to eat dinner with them, confirming that he, was, he wasn't a ghost. So when we read this, we can know that Luke carefully investigated to ensure certainty. Okay, so, But is it enough to believe the writings of one man on something so vital to our faith? Perhaps within the Bible, the most compelling ev- evidence that these events actually took place is within a widely accepted fact that, uh, about the New Testament and Paul. Now bear with me for a little bit, okay? Uh, virtually all scholars no matter how skeptical they approach the Bible, um, agree that 1 Corinthians and Galatians are among the early authoritative Christian writings that were written and were written by the Apostle Paul. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul presents the earliest known discourse on the resurrection, even earlier than the Gospels, and it is believed that he acquired it from the Apostles Peter and James, who was the brother of Jesus, When he visited them in Jerusalem around A.D. 35, basically, which means that that was at least five or six years after uh, Jesus's crucifixion. Now, keep in mind, Peter, James, and then we'll later talk about John, were the three closest friends of Jesus. John even laid his head on Jesus's chest at one point, heard his heartbeat. That's how close John was and Paul inquired of James and John uh, sorry Peter and James and in the context of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians they discussed the gospel message which unquestionably included the claim that Jesus had literally risen from the dead fast forward 14 years later to Galatians Paul returns to Jerusalem to the to discuss the gospel and this time it was with Peter James and John to determine whether they held the same central message of Christ's resurrection. You can see that in Galatians 2 2. And what, what Paul says is that none of them added anything to Paul's message, rather, they agreed with him. And so, take it from Paul, though, okay? He was beaten, put in jail he was bitten by a viper, he was shipwrecked, he was et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all for the sake of preaching the gospel. And then in, in Galatians 2, 2, he says that he met with James, Peter, and John because, because I don't know if this sounds like you, but this sounds like me. It says, I wanted to be sure. <laughs> I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. I wanted to be sure that the lashings that I was getting wasn't, wasn't uh, due to a man who actually did not resurrect. And thanks be to God that whenever he talked to Peter, James, and John, they were able to confirm that Jesus indeed had resurrected. And so he says, all the more I will boast in my weaknesses for the sake of knowing Jesus because he is alive and well. <laughs> so I know what you're saying. As you're sitting there and you're saying, Johnny, I I hear what you're saying, but I'm questioning the validity of the scriptures as a whole. Now, how can I know that the scriptures are true? Now, that would actually take another hour or so to be able to talk through that. So this is not that kind of message today. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. But here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you uh, to choose to start somewhere and not just to stay in your doubt. Okay? Don't, don't stay in your doubt. Start somewhere. And so I actually want to give you just three resources, easy resources that are approachable. If you ever had this question, you can say, how can I trust that the scriptures are true? And the first one is a documentary. The documentary, Lauren and I actually went on a date night to watch this documentary at the movie theater. Yeah. Wow. Pastor. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that documentary is called Fragments of Truth, and Craig Evans goes through in a brilliant dis- discussion, and it's done very well. I wouldn't put a cheesy documentary in front of you. Um, this is done very well, and it's called Fragments of Truth, and it's basically going through why or, or, or why the scriptures are reliable. It's, it's wonderful. I want to give you a practice. Here's the practice: read the Bible. Now, I didn't say read the Bible and believe it. I'm simply just asking you to read the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, the Bible that you just got from under your seat, that is our gift to you if you don't have one. And all I'm asking you is to practice reading the Bible. And then the third one, you're saying, Johnny, I need a book. Give me a book. I'll give you a book. Uh, why, uh, I can't see that on the screen here. So why trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert is a very easy, approachable read. And in there, uh, you, you can read through why uh, the, the Bible is reliable and why we can trust the Bible. So I wanted to give you that to be able to answer that question. But here at Ennioct, Dallas you go out on our webpage, this is what it says, that we believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative, living, eternally reliable word of God, and it is our rule of faith and practice and necessary to our daily lives. And so everything that we read in this word, we are going to believe it. Everything that we read in this word, we're going to practice it. Everything that we read, we say, hey, Luke painstakingly went through and documented this thing, so can I trust that the resurrection happened? Yes. So let's go to our second question. Why is the resurrection of victory we can count on? So that's our qu- second question. Why is the resurrection of victory we can count on? And the, and the moment that I want to uh, call out to you is uh, verse 36 of Luke chapter 24. And it says this. That while they were still talking about this... Jesus himself stood among them and he said this to them, Peace be with you. You see, when Jesus was resurrected, hope was restored. Because when Jesus enters into this room where, where they, they were on pins and needles because they had heard that maybe Jesus had resurrected and they still wasn't, weren't sure because they, they hadn't seen him. And did he really rise from the dead or, or is he still dead? And, and they were still in their turmoil or they were still there. When Jesus enters in, he enters in with peace and he's announcing that the kingdom of God has come into a broken world. And what he said is, peace be with you see, when he enters in and post-resurrection comes up, uh, God comes and he rules over all. And those who believe in God inherit his kingdom and they reign with him and he gives us eternal life. That's what, at the time, the disciples were looking forward to. But when Jesus resurrected, what was to come came to be. What, uh, the, what was to come came to be, where the blind receive sight, where lame walk, the sick are healed, the deaf hear, and death is defeated. Sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. And we don't have to wait for a coming Messiah that is dry, coming down from the clouds, but instead he resurrected. And in that moment, what was to come came to be. Now, I don't want to gloss over this uh, sin is defeated and death is defeated and Satan is defeated because all of us have or at some point will experience the pain of the brokenness of this world. Yeah. And as I was preparing this message and I was preaching it to Lauren, she said, she said this. She goes, Johnny, now I know everybody's waiting for Lauren comments because they're awesome. <laughs> she says, Johnny, I don't think you have to convince anyone that they need hope. We are all aware that we need more of it. For me, it was the death of my mother-in-law. You see, in many ways, the the grief of losing her comes in waves. And if if you have ever lost someone, you know it doesn't matter if it's a year, if it's five years, ten years, sometimes even 20 years later. But grief comes in like waves. You never know when it's going to hit you, but it hits you. And... I can remember back where I had the privilege of, 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 of preaching at her Grave Slide service, and, and while staring at her coffin, I can remember this vividly saying the words that hold truth and help my wife and I with our grief. And I said, The empty tomb is the evidence that death is not final. We can't evade grief. Grief comes into every human life because grief is intimately connected to the brokenness of the world around us. But let's make no mistake about it. Jesus is not some detached God or some detached deity. He knows how to enter into another suffering. He's not a stranger to human weakness. He, he empathizes with you. He enters into the hopelessness and he shows up into those moments and he says, Peace. Be with you. He restores hope to an otherwise hopeless situation. Had he not resurrected, he would be a liar, and the scriptures would be lying. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it states that he died according to the scriptures and that he resurrected according to the scriptures. And since Jesus announced he was going to die and rise again on the third day, then we can trust. We've already established that we can trust it. But let's look at uh, verses 13 through 19 to give us further insight into what it would be like if Christ had not resurrected. So 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19, and that's on the screen. And it says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not, then not even Christ has been raised. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most be pitied, to be pitied. Had Christ not resurrected, Paul says that our preaching is useless. I might as well go home. Our faith is in vain. What you believe is for no reason. We are misrepresenting God because he says uh, that, that uh, sorry, uh, if Christ has not raised, uh, th- there it is, um, oh man, that's verse, hmm, hmm. verse 15, there it is. More than that, then we're found to be false witnesses about God. Faith is futile and we're still in our sins according to verse 17 and then verse 19 we are most to be pitied if we only have hope in this life. You see, the very essence of faith is a confidence of what we hope for and an assurance of what we do not see. And see, I'm not talking about some kind of ethereal faith, or, uh, but a, a, as, as Daniel Roby uh, said to us as he was preaching to us the other day, um, f- it's a faith that works. It's a faith that knows that God is working in our lives. He's transforming us, and he's tethering our belief to his person in power. Yeah. It's a faith that I can remain steady and knowing that there is hope for my future because Jesus has resurrected. And if he has resurrected, then I know that he is able to step into the faith that I have, that he is working in me, and that he's drawing me closer to him. That he is helping me as a, as a friend to engage with my friends and to be able to love them and to love those that don't know Jesus because of, of the future hope that I know he's coming back again. It's a faith that helps me engage with my children and, and, to, and to work, I mean, hard at being able to train them in righteousness, all because of what Jesus did. It's an ability for me, whenever I was single, to remain content in my singleness because I knew that there was a hope that is not necessarily found in someone, but it's found in Jesus. And that's not to gloss over the fact that there was pain in my heart because I was desiring uh, to be with someone. It's a faith that leads us into this next season of Advent that we're entering into and beginning next Sunday. Because he resurrected, we know that he is faithful to his word. And not only did he declare that he would resurrect, but he's also announced that he's coming again. So don't fear. Don't falter. Don't get impatient because he's coming back again. And, and that's what we're going to be celebrating beginning next Sunday. That we that w- w- the people of God were, were wanting a Messiah to come and he came. And now we, as the people of God in this time, are waiting for his image. Re- return man all right so it is because of that hope that we have that we have a victory that we can count on we can flash our peace our not our peace sign but our victory sign and we can say victory in jesus name but johnny you're saying now what are the implications of the resurrection on my life today thanks for asking we're going into our third and final question What are the implications of the resurrection on my life today? And so I actually want to give you two moments where there's an invitation into participation. Two moments of an invitation into participation. The first moment is found beginning in verse uh, 28. And it says this, as they approached the village to which they were going... Jesus continued on as if if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. You see, uh, in this particular portion of Scripture, Jesus appears to them as they walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which was a seven mile stretch of road. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus began to explain to Cleopas and his friend uh, what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. That later on, Cleopas and his friend said, Did not our hearts burn while he was talking? And whenever they got to Cleopas' and his friend's house, Jesus acted as if he were going to keep going. And Cleopas and his friend urged him and said, stay with us. I want to argue that it was whenever Jesus was invited into their home and eating at their table, when they realized that the man sitting in front of them was Jesus who had resurrected. So what is the implication of the resurrection on my life today? I, you, must invite him into the pain, the disappointment, marriage, relationships, parenting, work. It's essentially inviting him into life. And I must invite him in to participate in the restoration of my life. You see, there's something common that in, the, in, in human societies everywhere that is lodged deep. I mean, it goes deep. That reaches anxiously for a world outside of, outside of our actual experiences. That's something that is not quite of this earth where we're looking and seeking for the highest degrees of justice and peace. And what this reveals is that all of us actually have a yearning for God. You have a yearning for God when you experience or you see injustices because of race, gender, or religion. You can turn on the news and you can see the injustices that are happening to people simply because of the way that they look, but what they believe or, or uh, be, because of whether they're male or female or whatever it is that they're trying to, to, to figure out. And injustices are happening there, and we have a yearning for God that rises up. Please, God, return. We have a yearning for God when you're looking across the table at your friend or your spouse, and you're not seeing eye to eye on the way life should be lived. How many times have I sat in front of Lauren crying? Because we both have a yearning for God to intervene into our marriage and into our life. How many times have you had a yearning for God when you've had to engage with your children as one of them yells, mine, or that's not fair, or or if you have a kid like Knox where he looks at you and goes, I'm mad at you, I'm going to punch you. (laughs) He does do that, right, love? We all have a yearning for God to enter in and to intervene to bring about full and complete restoration. So I want to encourage you, the first moment under this question is to invite Jesus to the table of your life. Hmm. You see, hospitality was a crucial feature of Jesus' day. It was a matter of survival. Survival. There was no hotels, there was no fast food chains. People had to depend on the kindness of others for safety, lodging, and food. One theologian said that it was a pillar on which the moral structure of the world rested. So when you invite Jesus in, you're inviting him into the areas of your life that are not otherwise visible to others. Those areas where you need the victory of Jesus in, that is found in Christ's resurrection. You see, I need him in my angst and my anxiety. I need him in in my doubt. I need him in the depression of life, in sadness or grief. I need him in the injustice that is taking place around us. I need him whenever in my anger. These are the areas where I need Jesus the most and I need his power. When my flesh is pulling me towards the things that keep me from living in resurrection power, we need him, church. Man, we need him. And if you're here and and you don't know Jesus and you want to make him Lord over your life, And invite him in. We're we're going to have our prayer and prophetic team up here at the end of service to help you do just that. You see, the scriptures would tell us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in, in, in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. So please, I ask. Don't. Let today pass without giving your life to Jesus and living in his resurrection power. I want to delay there for a little bit. We still have some time. Take an inventory. Where do I need Jesus? Where do I need to invite him in? Because it's when we invite him in that we begin to experience the peace in the middle of chaos. Hope in our hopelessness. Joy in the midst of our sorrow. As our declaration would say, and a renewed sense of identity and purpose. So stop. Don't think about the oven that you left on. The Cowboys play at three thirty. You have some time. Don't worry. Stay in this moment, right now. Invite Jesus in. Lord, I begin to pray. people this morning, that we would not be afraid for you to enter into these places of our life and say, peace be with you. That your resurrection power and peace would fill our hearts. If there's anyone in here who is needing to know you, that you, your Holy Spirit, would draw them unto you. second instance the second moment that i want to call out to you as we end the book of luke is that when there is a renewed sense of identity and purpose then there is an invitation by jesus to participate in us going out so luke chapter 24 beginning in verse 45 and I don't want to let this moment pass, but, but I do want to begin to enter into a time of celebration because all of this is a cause to celebrate. Because beginning in verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds, so this is, uh, well, th- let me read it. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Because, you see, if I need Jesus in, 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 in the most in areas not otherwise visible to others, then there are others who have those areas as well. You see, by virtue of the fact that Jesus said that the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, he is inviting the disciples at that point into participating in preaching the good news to all nations. Within the Antioch movement, which you've heard already by installing some of these um, uh, overseers, we have a mission where we say that we are going to go to the ST of the uttermost. Specific to us in Dallas, we're going to be on mission to build his kingdom in our city, nation, and nations of the earth. Because we're going to go into the city, nation, and nations of the earth preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Because when Jesus resurrected and he ascended, he did not leave us as orphans. No, he didn't leave us alone. He sent us the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and Paul in Romans says that if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And I don't want to start the book of Acts today either. But Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, said in Acts 1.8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. And so we are, uh, the Holy Spirit was sent to empower us to be witnesses of the resurrection power of Jesus, to expand his kingdom. See, the message of Jesus is the news that God sent his son to rescue people from the curse of sin and death. And it is the news that the rescuer, Jesus, gave his life in exchange for ours. Then, those, uh, then he rose from the dead to offer us new life, an incorruptible life with God. It was love that sent the rescuer to his death, and it was love that raised him to life again. <laughs> The disciples could have sat in their loathing. We could sit in our loathing because Jesus had died, but they didn't because Christ has resurrected. Instead, they couldn't stay there. They had to go out and tell others of the good news and go out and make disciples. And so it is because of that church that here at Antioch Dallas, it's why we have life groups. It's why we go out on mission trips. It's why we serve on Sunday. It's why we plant churches around the world. It is because of the invitation to participation that Jesus extends to us. And it begins with Jesus stepping into our life. And it ends with an invitation to go out into the world to proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus came, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. And everyone who believes this has the relationship with God restored. And if God said it, then it will happen. Hmm. So we can know this. That our labor is not in vain. We can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is risen. Oh, come on, church. Jesus is risen. And if we say Jesus is risen, He is. Jesus is risen. Oh, come on. I want you to say it like you believe it. If Jesus is risen. If Jesus is risen. I said, if Jesus is risen, risen. risen. yeah. (laughs) I believe this. Yes, I do. So we're going to go into a time of communion. And I want to go ahead and ask the officiants to come up. See, communion is an opportunity for us to come to the Lord's table. And take a a piece of bread and a cup of juice to remember Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. We take this to remember that his body was broken. His blood was poured out with the certainty that he rose from the dead. So as we sing the song of celebration, it's not going to be normal. We're going to sing a faster song than normal. But as we sing the song of celebration, I encourage you to take it with thanksgiving, knowing that Jesus has risen, and he is risen indeed. You may come up whenever you're ready. I was barely believing my shame